HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. Today we're talking about grain. We're on a grain kick. We're interested in replacing the monopoly in the monoculture that, of currently dominates our landscape. And so we're meeting the people who are involved in re-regionalizing grain and generally uh, exerting their protagonism to rebuild infrastructure in breeding, milling, sifting, sorting, distributing, baking uh, our daily bread. So, to this end, we have invited David Oyen, who is quite famous recently because he was in a book called The Lentil Underground, which I highly recommend, uh, describing the efforts of Montana growers. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Severin. It's great to be here. It's great to have you there. Would you mind just jumping right into your, an introduction of yourself and the landscape you farm in? Sure. Um, well, I'm a, uh, a third-generation farmer here in Montana. Uh, the reason I moved back, uh, there's really a number of reasons, but, you know, as a young kid, I grew up on this farm and, you know, played in the dirt, watched the hawks fly overhead. Of course, I uh, drove a tractor long before I could legal, legally drive a car, and um, and I enjoyed all of that. And then also, I uh, came of age, graduated from high school, went to college in the 60s and 70s, which, uh, as you know, that was the beginning of, of the modern environmental movement, uh, uh, counterculture and so forth. And, um, you know, it was an era of questioning authority and really believing that grassroots movement could, uh, could change both the social and, and the political status quo. So, uh, you know, my, my cultural paradigm really is, is probably rooted in, you know, Margaret Mead's famous saying is never doubt that a small group of thoughtful and committed citizens can change the world. And uh, that's, you know, was kind of really my, my mindset. And, you know, what a better way to do that than, uh, than move back to the family farm 
and um, and and you know try to change the world uh, you know basically one field at a time. So a lot of our listeners are young farmers or aspiring farmers, often in their first years getting into and trying to commit to agriculture, um, and sure. they often are having struggles. We, in our young farmer generation, don't necessarily have a strong enough oral tradition around what the farm crisis was like. And I wonder if you could maybe give a little bit of a description when you came back to the farm in the 70s, or I think it was the late 70s, is that right? Um, yep. What happened um, around you during the farm crisis? Yeah, well, uh, you know, as as you mentioned, when I came back farm, it was in the uh, it, it was in the uh, mid to late seventies, nineteen seventy six to be exact. And what I came back to was an energy crisis. Uh, the OPEC energy nations, um, oil producing and exporting countries, uh, primarily um, uh, from the Middle East, uh, they'd put an oil embargo on on the U.S. for uh, for political reasons. And of course, this had a huge impact on the economy in general. But particularly in agriculture, because we were so dependent upon fossil fuels, diesel fuel, gasoline for the tractors, uh, synthetic chemicals were uh, many of them derived from from petrochemicals, and most particularly uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which is extremely energy intensive to manufacture. So there was the energy crisis. Then there was also the farm crisis in the late 70s and early 80s that due in part to the oil embargo also due in part to the fact that the U.S. government, political reasons, uh, had put uh, a wheat embargo so we couldn't sell wheat to Russia, so the, the prices dropped like a rock. And then there's also just kind of the, uh, uh, the, the general farm policy, uh, the official federal farm policy, and it was, voiced, it was voiced by Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts. He said, get big or get out. Uh, the farm policy, it was supported by land-grant universities, by the research, uh, and by the federal farm program to basically industrialize agriculture, to, uh, to, uh, to make things um, uh, more simple, more focused. The message really kind of was, don't grow five crops like your grandfather or grandfather did. You only need to grow one or two. You know, specialize, it's more efficient, buy your neighbors out, get bigger, buy larger equipment, put on more chemicals and fertilizers, increase yields so we can export more, um, you know, overseas and, and bring more money, you know, back to America, basically. Uh, but as a result And what did that, that mean? What did that mean around you um, where you were farming? What did that mean in terms of the culture of, of agriculture and the, the communities of place in the place where you – what did that mean crop-wise? Well, um, you know, uh, uh, crop-wise, it meant that it meant that agriculture, the vast majority of agriculture uh, in the eastern two-thirds of Montana, which is where the uh, it's really where agriculture happens here, the northern Great Plains, um, the crops were uh, uh, the, the cropping systems were very much simplified to growing wheat and barley. That is what the federal farm program basically subsidized farmers to grow because that's that was an export crop. So uh, we went from a relatively diversified agriculture, you know, in my grandparents' time, and even and even through much of my uh, my, my father's generation, to uh, to very specialized monocrop, monoculture. You know, fence row to fence row was wheat. Your neighbors was wheat for miles and miles and miles. It was it was a monocrop, uh, either wheat or barley, uh, cereal grain 
kind of crop. Um, so, so you're not growing. That's. Uh, do you want to describe what happened between then and now, and the process of rediversifying? What it took. Yeah. Um, so you know uh, the, uh, the the result of that farm crisis. You know, in in my mind, another you know another um, you know handful of friends of mine was that you know there may not be a future for us um, you know on our farms in another in our own generation or a future generation uh, just because farmers are going out of business you know industrializing specializing and being and being basically victims of the of an export commodity market so. Um, Based on you know, uh, based on kind of the knowledge of 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 uh, what some of us had learned in college and some of us had learned in books or other ways was that maybe we need to rediversify uh, our cropping systems and and our marketing systems so we're not you know so dependent either on government subsidies or on or on huge international uh, grain export companies. And that's really the reason that we, you know, uh, we started this business called Timeless Seeds, three friends and I, also, you know, kids of my age, moving back to the family farms, wanting to convert them to organic for uh, uh, primarily environmental and philosophical reasons, you know, but also for economic reasons. We realized that uh, we probably could not survive another generation growing commodity crops, up, applying, um, you know, high, high rates of expensive uh, fossil fuel inputs synthetic fertilizers, toxic chemicals, and so forth. So, Tireless Seed Prep started in how many years ago, and, and how has the project shifted? What have been the outcomes that you've seen? Obviously, the seed is a very powerful place to begin. Tax uh, a good punch in terms of, <laughs> from a t as, a, t as a, t a purely tactical matter. Um, what has been your experience with this project? Yeah, well, you know, when we um, when we started Timeless Seeds, and, and and the reason we did was that in the process of converting, you know, conventional uh, our, our our conventionally farmed farms, which depended highly on nitrogen fertilizer, you know, we realized that number one, that was that was not allowed under organic practices, and we didn't even want to do it. Just because of the you know of the tide of fossil fuels, um, so we asked ourselves, well, how can we do something other than apply synthetic fertilizer? And and the way we were able to do that was to grow uh, legumes, these these crops that have, in conjunction with a symbiotic relationship with uh, with bacteria in the soil, are able to capture nitrogen out of the air, make it available to the plants. Provide 100% of the nitrogen available or needed by that plant, but also leave some residual for the following crop. Um, and that's really what got us interested in legumes to start with. Uh, we were uh, we were growing them strictly as cover crops, as plow down crops, uh, to enrich the soil. Um, and then we discovered uh, through through trying to sell the uh, the the cover crops was that. You know that wasn't the entire solution because farmers also needed, um, you know, farmers also needed um, income, and so we uh, increased our 
increased our horizons, basically, and, and investigated uh, edible legumes that could be grown in this area, which uh, for us here in the northern Great Plains is uh, lentils, peas, uh, dried peas, uh, which ended up going into split peas, and, uh, and more recently, chickpeas. Uh, those, are, those are three crops, three legume, edible legume crops, that, uh, that, that are suited to our uh, dry, cool season environment. And that's really kind of been the, you know, the, the, the basis of this, of this little company called Timeless Seeds ever since. Uh, beginning in the mid-90s, as the natural food movement um, increased and the markets increased for, uh, for organic food, um, the business really focused on providing uh, highly nutritious and unique varieties of, of these three legumes, lentils, peas, and chickpeas. And how is the market doing for, for lentils these days, and who is your competition in that market? Um, well, you know, uh, early on there was uh, uh, kind of national companies or companies that, that had become national and eventually were actually were bought out by, uh, by, you know, by even bigger companies. But uh, Arrowhead Mills, you know, I guess would be an example of, of, uh, of uh, a company that packaged lentils and put them on the retail shelf, um, Eden Foods as well. Um, and you know our real our real niche in that you know in that market was the fact that we introduced um, varieties that that the bigger companies did not carry and um, and and focused on niche markets uh, that were interested in in you know knowing exactly which farms uh, the lentils or the peas came from. Uh, we're interested in the stories. We're interested in the fact that that they were grown by family farmers, and that in fact the customers could come out and you know uh, could visit our farms, could hear our stories, could meet could meet the farmers, and could understand you know really uh, the importance of these crops within uh, within cropping rotations um, in in the area of of uh, Montana, North Dakota, Saskatchewan, Alberta. That's kind of the area that these crops uh, do best in. And what are the prospects looking forward? Are you seeing more and more people opting into the lentil underground? And uh, do you feel like the the market is there to support more and more diversification, or do you see obstacles and challenges in terms of replacing commodity structures that it, that dominate right now? Yeah, well, there's both opportunities and you know and and constraints, I guess. Uh, uh, the opportunities are the fact that people are are increasingly interested in in plant-based proteins, you know, which is really kind of one of the the calling cards of these uh, of these legumes. And there's a there's a general term um, uh, pulse crops uh, that that covers peas, lentils, chickpeas, and dry beans like pinto beans and black turtle beans and so forth. Um, so uh, the pulse crops generally have become, um, um, you know, a lot higher on the radar screen, if you will, of, of, of uh, both food manufacturers that maybe make whatever chips or some finished product or soup, uh, but, but also consumers, uh, just, just regular shoppers, because these crops are so nutritionally dense, you know, very high in protein, very high in, 
in um, dietary fiber, low glycemic index, the list goes on and on. So consumers are being increasingly interested in them, and also uh, so are chefs, because in addition to the um, uh, nutritional aspect, uh, they also have uh, a wide variety of, of culinary applications. All these, all these crops were, were domesticated eight to 10,000 years ago in an area that uh, we kind of now call Middle East or the, the, the Fertile Crescent. Um, so there's a wide variety of culinary applications and uses, um, you know, that, that, that date back thousands of years. So chefs are very interested in them uh, just, for their, uh, just for their versatility. Um, and then well, between the uh, chefs and the vegans, it's a, it's a good coalition. And oh, what totally. about yeah, op- yeah. What about obstacles? Yeah, um, you know, the obstacles are that, in America at least, uh, these crops still are not, you know, are not generally known, you know, um, and outside, you know, those communities, you know, that you mentioned, the uh, vegans and vegetarians, you know, have, have been familiar with, uh, with plant-based protein, um, you know, all along, but the, the average consumption of uh, meat in in America is something like 195 pounds per person per year. Okay, uh, I'll let you that's get That's a lot. That's so, that's so much every day. That's a third of a pound. Wait a minute. That's more than a third. That's of a, right. That's, that's a bunch. Yep. So um, I'll, I'll ask you what what do you think the the average consumption of lentils are per person per year in the U.S. Well, I would say, personally, I eat at least 55 gallons of lentils per year. But I yeah, don't know. Tell yeah. me. Uh, it, it's actually 10 ounces per person per year on the average. Holy that's, that's, smoke. That's three servings, okay? That's three servings over the course of a year. So, you know, so one of the big challenges is, you know, I mean, for, you know, uh, for our company is is the fact that, uh, you know, consumption is so low and that, and that, you know, it is just not a very standard part of, uh, of the American diet. Um, the United Nations has recently designated uh, uh, year 2016 as the International Year of Pulses, so the International Year of Beans, Lentils, Peas, and Chickpeas. And the reason they've, they have done that is that, is that it's a recognition of, of the value of these crops agriculturally, agronomically, in the cropping rotations. It's the value of these crops um, nutritionally across the planet, and it's also the value of these crops uh, because they have such a low-carbon footprint because they make their own nitrogen, and they don't, uh, the peas, lentils, and chickpeas at least, do not require uh, you know, supplemental irrigation. So they have a very low water footprint, a very low carbon footprint. And um, uh, the United Nations this year has a global initiative to increase the awareness and the use of all of these pulse crops. Um, so, you know, the good news, or the bad news is the good news, I guess. The bad news is that hardly anybody, um, at least in America, in North America, is accustomed to eating uh, these, you know, these highly nutritious crops. Um, but the good news is um, everybody will be eating more and more of them because, um, you know, they're going to realize the value, uh, both the health value and the, and, and the value to the planet and to the farming, 
um, to uh, you know to to include these in their diet. Um, I wonder if the UN has provides recipes with their recommendations. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's uh, there's I'm lots joking, of recipes. I'm have, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a um, a website called uh, EatingPulses.com um, that that gives a lot of recipes. Our our own you know our own website uh, TimelessFood.com gives recipes, and our Facebook page we post recipes all the time. Right. And first, can just do a search for for whatever you know, uh, what whatever dish you would like. You know, uh, lentils as an appetizer, lentil hummus, chickpea hummus, split pea. You know, split pea salad. I mean, there's there's tens of thousands of of recipes. You know, on the internet. Uh, just- well, we're gonna issue a challenge to the greenhorns. Uh, you know, you'll notice that there's a subpopulation. Uh, of young farmers who practically subsist entirely on pulses and rice and coriander yeah. and curry powder. So you got yeah. a good team go- going here in terms of our listenership. I wanted to just, while we have our only 10 minutes left, I wanted to uh, delve into the, pro- the, the wonderful book, Lentil Underground, and how it, how, uh, what your relationship was with this young journalist who came out uh, she now teaches at Stanford and at Berkeley. Liz Carlisle. She's super. She's super gung ho and smart and wonderful. And of course, I always wish there were more and better agricultural journalism in the U.S. about topics that are relevant on big acreages, which in, in fact this is. And uh, I wish there was better reporting at the New Yorker. I wish there was better reporting in the NPR. I wish there was better reporting in the New York Times. And um, I'm just so glad to see such such good reporting. Can you talk about, from a farmer's perspective, interacting with the journalist and getting the story out and how that affected what was going on on the ground, if it did? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, this author, Liz, Liz Carl, is, is, as, as you mentioned, she's, she's actually a phenomenal, you know, um, uh, a phenomenal writer and just, and just a wonderful person. She graduated from Harvard. She had a couple of years uh, as, as a country western singer, opened for some pretty big acts. Uh, she ended up uh, working for uh, Montana's U.S. Senator John Tester uh, because she got interested in agricultural policy. As it turns out, John Tester uh, is an organic farmer who, in fact, uh, has grown has grown lentils for Timeless in the past. And it was through her uh, uh, through her service with, with John Tester. That uh, that she became familiar with with timeless and 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 the additional farmers that were out here, you know, trying to make a difference on their on their family farms and changing up, uh, increasing their the diversity on their own farms and so forth. Uh, Liz spent a couple years interviewing farmers and and land grant researchers and the timeless founders and so forth, and doing work that uh, she thought was going to lead to. Uh, you know, to her PhD, publishing of some of some academic papers, and she certainly, you know, and she certainly did that, um, and got her PhD at UC Berkeley. But somewhere along the line, she figured out there was a bigger story, you know, and there was something more than an academic dissertation that would basically just sit on a library shelf, maybe read by, you know, a hundred people or hundred academics or something. Uh, so she wrote this narrative for the general reader, you know, called it the Lentil Underground. Um, renegade farmers and future of food in America, um, and um, you know it's about growing what 
what was uh, kind of virtually an unheard of uh, legume crop um, in the U.S., and not only doing it organically, uh, but doing that, the more bigger story was, was doing that in the face of industrial-produced wheat monoculture. Um, you know, and it was about the farmers who do that. And the real story, I think, is, you know, it's about building resilience, resilience in the soil, resilience among the farming community, um, and across the food system. It's really, you know, uh, the, the, the lentils is really kind of, you know, a symbol, a metaphor of, of, of uh, collaborative effort and, and uh, the health not only of, of the farms but of, of the planet as well. Well, what I'm hoping is that more and more people will want to join your underground movement. There's um, a really interesting conference we went to with Greenhorns was uh, the FFA gathering where young agricultural youth come for youth leadership, and there's about 60,000 there. And a lot of their parents uh, have land. A lot of them come from farming families, not all of them. Um, a lot of them just come from places with an agricultural history. And the, 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 the theme of the convention was the Hunger Games. Okay. And the motto of the convention was uh, volunteer as a tribute. So it may hmm. have been over the heads of the marketing team of this 60,000-person convention of agricultural youth that they were encouraging young people to... Uh, volunteer as tributes and play as gladiators and be victims of the um, fascist food state. But what's nice about the Hunger Games is that the, the underground, the resistance movement, the revolution, the grassroots, whatever you want to call it, ends up winning in the end. So I thought it was a good omen for the underground. That's great. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, yeah. that is really a group, of, a group of young people who have been watching their parents struggle, as you did, and as many of our organic elders and uh, sub-elders, the in-between the elders and the youngers, or the sub-elders, or the, I don't know what they, I don't know who they are, (laughs) but anyway, uh, is having watched what their parents were experiencing, seeing through the hype, um, or seeing through the kind of prescriptions on either policy or on ag school basis, and trying to invent our way forward towards more regional economy, more self-reliance, less input, um, and, and a, a, a more reliable marketplace. So yeah, I'm hoping that some of those kids will see the light and join the underground. Oh, yeah. Well, I suspect they will. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's easy uh, to be pessimistic these days about, you know, about the concentration of agriculture and, you know, and the, and, and the big egg food system and everything, but... You no, know, I think what what you're pointing out is you know is 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 kind of the other side of that. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Uh, you know, not only kids moving back to the family farms, but even more than that, is is you know young people who do not have uh, you know maybe a farming background and yet have decided that you know that farming is an important career, and and um, you know and and opens up the opportunity to contribute in many many ways to. You know, to the betterment of society and the betterment of the planet. Um, I'm I'm actually quite optimistic. Well, it's springtime is a good time for optimism, and I really appreciate your coming on the show ahead of ahead of. Well, are, are you already planting? No, it's still 
frozen and covered in ice, right? No, I, I, I did not. Uh, I, I did not hear you. Oh, when do you put your seeds in the ground? Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, planting is coming up. You know, um, it's it's actually uh, below freezing today, but probably in the next, you know, in the next uh, one to four or five weeks, uh, we will, you know, uh, we'll be planting our crops out here in the Great Plains. Uh, plant in basically April and May and harvest in, in August, early September. Well, in between those times, we'll be thinking of you as we eat our lentil soup. I want to remind everyone who's listening that this summer is great, full of good programs. Um, in particular, a big festival that we're organizing up in the Champlain Valley, which was of New York, which was previously a bread basket. Um, during the Revolutionary War and a site of great contestation uh, previous to that, not previous to that, during that time. Um, and that conference or gathering or festival is called Power North, and it's three days long with three themes, horsepower, agroforestry, and rural populism. It'll be in Grange Halls. We'll be at the fairgrounds. It's train accessible. It's bike accessible from anywhere along the Hudson River corridor of Amtrak. Um, there's beautiful places to stay, and there's lots of workshops, uh, puppet shows, lectures, etc., to um, satisfy your curiosity about the northern regions and why cheap land looks so good up north. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining uh Learn more about Timeless Seeds online. Okay. Well, thanks so, so, so much, and uh, good luck with your conference. Sounds exciting. Happy spring, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 